Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. By the time we hit our 50s, most of us have, let's just say, lived a little. But few have been through the mill to quite the extent that Christina Patterson has. Christina was 49 and recovering from breast cancer when she lost the job that she not just loved, but that defined her. Rebuilding her life and career in her 50s formed the basis of her first book, Memoir Come Survival Manual, The Art of Not Falling Apart. As if that wasn't enough for one person to cope with. On top of this crushing loss, she has lived through a second cancer diagnosis and multiple family deaths. She is, in her own words, the last one standing. Her new memoir, Outside the Sky is Blue, tells of the dynamics of a family in the grip of one child's mental health crisis. It's a story of love and loss but ultimately, unexpectedly, a celebration. I thought, well, fuck it. And I had a 50th birthday party. And because I thought, well, you've still got to have parties. You can't stop having parties unless you're in a pandemic, in which case, obviously, you do have to. Christina and I talked about all the big stuff. Guilt, grief, failure and family dynamics. How to cope when your body starts saying the things your mind can't. Being a failure at relationships. How she finally learned to get out of her own way. And why there is nothing but nothing like a good party. I know you're going to refute this, but you always look so glamorous that I just was thinking, oh my God, I should run and put some makeup on. And then I thought, I know, too late. I used my last two minutes bribing the cat with dreamies. So. <laughs> well, A, thank you. B, of course not. And C, I tried to do a Scodcast recording earlier this week and it was bouncing back. So I thought, well, I must actually do a quick check. So 15 minutes ago, I did one and I just washed my hair and I had very little sleep and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, fuck, I can't let her see me like this. I ran off and dried my hair. And oh, like no, you'd be really surprised, actually. The number of people who message and say, is there video? And I'm like, well, no, I can see you, but it's mm. not recording. One author who will remain nameless mm. literally had just washed her hair. And she's like, well, only you can see me. I was like, well, fair enough. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I'm not brave enough to do that. You know, I go out without makeup if I'm running or whatever, but it really isn't, for the most part, about what anyone else thinks. It's about mm. seeing myself in the mirror and thinking that is really going to depress the hell out of me. So let me put some mascara on and some yeah. uh, eyeliner because things like, you know, I, I used to have, you know, relatively normal size eyes and they seem to be shrinking to a piglet. Like, <laughs> you know, need to do something to make them slightly more kind of, you know, defined. Yeah, I think for me as well, it's as my hair has faded. I feel like everything's faded. So, you know, when you catch a glimpse of yourself in a shop window and you just think, oh my God, it's just it's just a beige blur now. <laughs> I can't believe you think that. But yes, obviously we all have these kind of weird perceptions. Insane hang Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, firstly, I want to say Outside the Sky is Blue is amazing. Oh, thank you. I think you. you should be very very proud of it thank you I think so you're doing incredibly well it's so good thank you so much Sam that really means a lot to me I very much doubt that it will do extremely well but it really means a lot when people like you say you like it that really really means a great deal because obviously this book means kind of for obvious reasons so much to me I mean both this book and The Art of Falling Apart really are about how we deal with the blows life throws at us, aren't they? Yes, it seems to be my theme. Certainly didn't set out to make it the theme of my work or life, but it does seem <laughs> quite prominent. So yes. I mean, you've had an awful lot of, I suppose, shifts, for want of a better way of putting it, in your life. But even though it wasn't the most personal, it does seem like losing your job in your late forties was the most impactful. Yes. Obviously, since Tom died, it feels hard to say that now because losing Tom was absolutely horrendous. Mm -hmm. But certainly up until that point, awful though it sounds, because I had lost my sister and my father and had cancer. But losing my job was utterly devastating. And I think it was partly because I was single and didn't have a family. And work was the life I had crafted for myself. And mm. it was the thing I could say I had done reasonably well. I felt like such a failure on so many other fronts. And it was going pretty well. Not that I sort of thought that at the time. I have always been or certainly used to be very, very tough on myself. And you would go to bed feeling like a kind of, you know, failure on every front all the time. I don't mean in a completely and utterly neurotic way, though I'm sure there's a hefty dose of neurosis in there. But I do now think having, like you, interviewed masses of people, I think that kind of inbuilt dissatisfaction is part of what makes most of us want to strive to to do stuff. Although I'm sure that women experience it rather more intensely. But I did love my job. It was for me an absolute dream to earn my living as a writer. I had, hadn't really dared go into a journalism when I was younger. When I was at university, I went to see a careers officer and she said, oh, what do you want to do? And I, I was very innocent, really. And everyone in my family had done public service in one form or another. And I was sort of vaguely thinking, you know, social work, this, that and the other. But what I really wanted to do was journalism. And I said, oh, I'd quite like to be a journalist. And she said, oh, it's very competitive. And for some reason, I thought, well, I better not try. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that probably had a lot to do with having been rejected by Oxford. My school had gone from a grammar school to comprehensive. They weren't doing formal Oxbridge tuition anymore. I mean, the odd kind teacher would give the odd kind class. So I had a, a kind teacher who sat and told me how wonderful Wordsworth was. But that definitely didn't help with the conventional application and so on. And three of my friends, my best friends got private tuition and I didn't. And I'm not saying this is why they got in and I didn't, but they did get in and I didn't. And I was devastated. <laughs> and for me, it was this was going to be my dream. And it coincided with when Bridesmaid was on the telly. So, you know, the yeah. sonorous music that just made my heart stir. And of course, I had 
dreams of escaping from suburbia and from problems at home and being in wood panelled rooms eating you know quail's eggs or whatever which is quite yeah, far, wafting quite far from my current life and um, when that dream was shattered god it really does sound so incredibly self-indulgent I, I think I say in the book you know hashtag first world problem which of course it is which in fact most of our problems are when it comes down to it but it did make me wary of doing stuff that would be very likely to make me get me rejected again so I did mm-hmm. quite early give up on that dream I did, as you know, other stuff first. I worked in, in publishing at South Bank and then ran the Poetry Society and then became a journalist age 39, which really was a dream come true and is quite late for a dream to come true. And so it was everything to me. My job was everything to me. It was my identity. It was my passion. It was what made me feel worthwhile. It was fantastically interesting. So to have that, as it felt, snatched away from me, honestly, I felt like I'd lost everything. With the proviso of hashtag first world problems, just put that at the top and then forget about it. Because, you know, like you say, all our problems are first world problems, really. Mm. In a way, you know, grief is a thing that is pinned to losing the people we love. But when a person loses a job that is defining for them, Mm. like you, speaking for a friend, um, (laughs) it is a grief Mm. because you're losing not just the structure and the status and the purpose but you're also kind of, in a way, you're losing yourself. Definitely, definitely. And you know, what with this being the theme of the podcast, I was 49. So I knew as a woman in the media, I knew that was it. I mean, we know the, the media mm. is, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this podcast, are we? Yes, yeah, yeah, swear okay, away, But we know the media's it. fucked, basically. Yeah. So if you're in journalism, you know you're kind of in the last chance saloon. And I was by that point, I, I had worked unbelievably hard, as I'm sure you have, for so many years. When I think of how I slogged my guts out, I mean, I've just... in my own podcast, which I was just madly uploading before coming onto this. And you'll know that's like. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's called The Art of Work. And it's about how we find fulfillment and some meaning and even some joy in our work, which is an obsession of mine, not least since I lost that job that gave me all those things. My latest guest is a, a really lovely young guy from the corporate world. He's a managing director at Accenture. And um, I asked him about working hours and he said, oh, well, I, you know, I have boundaries. I don't really work in the evenings. I don't really work at weekends. And I thought, what? What? I know. I, know. I mean, I can't, honestly, I can barely remember a weekend in my life, whether employed or freelance, when I've had a weekend off. And every evening I'm kind of plowing through the next book I've got to read or catching up with the news or whatever. And these days, you know, I really don't get paid very much for it. The vast majority of that work is unpaid. The emails, the social media, yeah. the promotion, the mugging up on the news so that I can be on Sky for a few minutes twice a month. You know, all of that is unpaid. And I thought, my God, he's a lovely guy. I'm not, there's no criticism of him. But I thought, goodness me, your world is completely different to mine. And we're all in journalism, even those of us who were lucky enough to have this, you know, holy grail called a staff job for a while with, you know, mm-hmm. a relatively decent salary, you know that even that is not going to last forever. And when you do lose it, and when you are a woman in your late 40s, however good you are at it, you know that unless there's a miracle, really, that's it. And as you know, from the book, you know, shortly after I was essentially fired, I was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. I was the only woman on the shortlist. My newspaper wouldn't even mention that they mentioned another guy who was on the shortlist and not me. And I made them put it in. I I went to the union, I made them put it 
writing. <laughs> but um, but yeah. you just think, wow. And I was told, you know, they were refreshing the pages. But funnily enough, all these so-called middle-aged men, who, were, of course, were not middle-aged. They were 10 years older than me, at least. Yeah. Fresh. And I, as a 49-year-old woman, was not. Yeah, you were refreshed out and based. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, you hear this experience so many times. And I'm sure you felt this when you were on the paper. And I certainly felt it when I was on magazines, that you kind of look up and there are no older women. I mean, for sure, it's a bit better now. But that experience of where have all the women gone? You know, it's really prevalent. All throughout, particularly outside the skies blue, because I've read that most recently, you do refer to yourself as a failure. And at one point, I think it's the second time you're diagnosed with breast cancer, mm. you talk about not so much you don't mind dying, I don't want to put words mm. into your mouth, mm. but that you um, don't want to die a failure. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I don't know you very well. I only know of you. And I just thought, what? She's not a failure. How would you be dying a failure? And then obviously all your friends were like, what are you talking about, Christina? <laughs> but that sense that you had... Where does that come from, do you think? You're far from alone. You know, it's so funny, Sam, because I actually want to cry now and I'm taken by surprise on that because I do remember that feeling so intensely. And thank God I don't feel that in quite the same way now. Every time I switch on the news, well, actually, at the moment, you know, obviously, when one hears of the myriad failures of government and so on, you know, it's hard not to feel like a roaring success in comparison just through, true, having, yeah. just through a day without, you know, being a pathological liar or whatever. I was uh, reading an interview in the Sunday Times magazine the other day with Ruby Wax and Richard Cole. And, you know, very good interview. And um, Ruby Wax has obviously done so many fascinating, brilliant things. And then casually mentioned that um, she was Chancellor of South Hampton University and Richard Cole said oh I'm Chancellor of Northampton University and then he said oh let's get on the phone with Dawn French she's Chancellor of I can't remember (laughs) (laughs) these people they're all best-selling writers and they've got other real jobs they're earning good money and they happen to have you know tiny little part-time roles as Chancellor of University and I thought if I'm sitting here with a tiny media profile if I'm sitting here reading this feeling more and more depressed in ironically you know an article by someone who's meant to have made a living out of depression then God knows how anyone else has been. So I do think we fixate on the people who we perceive to be more successful than us. But my particular really intense failure criterion at the time of my cancer I had in, when I was 46 was the sense that I hadn't managed a long-term relationship and hadn't had a family. But actually, that felt like less of a failure in a way than the not having had a long-term relationship. And I saw a therapist, a wonderful man, quite a scary guy, sort of headmasterish, former psychiatrist in the NHS and real grown up. And I just felt like I felt like a kind of teenage girl going in and saying, oh, yes, well, I've got to have my breast chopped off. And yes, I've had all these other things wrong with me and I'm a complete failure as a woman. And it was mortifying, so embarrassing. I can't tell you how embarrassing it was. Uh, It was a relief to lie on a couch because at least I didn't have to look at him. But even so, it was really embarrassing. (laughs) But I do think that that process really changed me at a kind of alchemical level. So even though I did subsequently meet someone and I'm now happily with someone and it has made a difference to me, I think that sense of being loved and solidity and knowing someone's got your back, quite apart from the fact that he is absolutely lovely, has made a real difference to me. But actually, I think the shift happened before, which was in that process of therapy, I think something really profound changed in me. And I think by the time I'd finished the therapy, which was shortly before I got fired, 
I did feel different. So even I now look back on those definitive statements when I thought, oh dear, if I die now, I will die a failure. And I now think that was such a fierce assessment, Christina, what on earth were you thinking? And I don't feel that now. I really, really don't want to die now. And in fact, I had a cancer scare a few weeks ago and I was thinking, oh no, I know, I know, please oh, sorry. But no, it's fine. If I did get a sort of terminal diagnosis now, I would be extremely upset and, you know, raging and screaming into the night, but not because I feel my life has been a failure, just because I want a hell of a lot more of it. Obviously, the book is about, it's a family memoir and it's as much about your family as it is about you. I was really, I was really struck. I mean, I'm fascinated by family dynamics anyway. I was really struck by the massive impact that the family dynamics had on you and your place in it. Um, can you tell me about the Sunshine Girl? Mm, that's such a good Which is question. what you call yourself as a toddler. Yeah. And it's so, it summons such an instant image so as a toddler, I was a very smiley little thing. And in all the photos, I'm kind of grinning or laughing or giggling. Very, very sweet, actually. Very sweet. Very fat. <laughs> very sweet. And, um, um, and then it's hard to say the moment it changed because my sister Caroline, also a very sweet girl. She was a very kind of pure girl. She was not malign in any way, very innocent in all kinds of ways. But she was very difficult and she would have these, what my mother called scenes all the time, these kind of great temper tantrums. And there was a sense, I think, that we were all walking on eggshells a lot. And I think probably even before her breakdown, that had an impact where we were all a bit kind of constantly scared of what would happen. And then when I was nine and she was 14, she went off to um, stay with a Norwegian family and spent some time on an island. Almost nobody there except the girl she was staying with and some grandmother. Obviously, I wish I could ask, but when she came back, she, I think, started hearing voices and smelling smells and things like that. I didn't know any of this at the time, but she disappeared and she was sent off, as my brother and I later found out, to the adolescent unit of a mental hospital and were eventually told that she'd had something called a nervous breakdown. And I suppose that was the thing that absolutely rocked the family. And I can't remember well enough, but I think I became very serious and a real goody-goody at school. I mean, you know, incredibly kind of conscientious and sweaty. And I went to a very progressive primary school. There was no homework. You know, it was all kind of play on the adventure playground, make a dinosaur out of loo rolls. It was on the estate, you know, where we lived. But I was toiling away at, you know, kind of collages of the Brontes in the evenings and things like yeah. that. <laughs> As you do when you're nine. <laughs> sort of unnecessarily and Roman forts and giving myself homework. And I became a real goody-goody. And I think, I think that was a kind of don't step on the crack in the paving stones a kind of thing and I definitely was less sunny and then as you know I went to a youth club in order to meet boys and unfortunately found God instead and then discovered I wasn't allowed to touch the boys and then was enthralled to this kind of malign dictator who apparently wanted to rule every aspect of my life and didn't want me to have very much fun so that was a whole other episode but I think essentially the sunshine girl really faded for a very long time and then I had the um, the kind of trauma of being essentially a fundamentalist Christian, radicalised really, and the trauma of giving up all kinds of things I wanted, like boys and sex and all kinds of fun and then illness. And 
so by the time I emerged from all of that in my mid-20s, physically debilitated with pain, with a, a kind of mysterious illness, a virgin, single, scarred by the severe acne that had developed or rather been exacerbated for some reason in my early 20s. I was about as far from a sunshine girl as you can get. So it would be fair to say the kind of waning of your personal sunshine tied in directly with the realisation of Caroline's I think mental so. illness. I think so. I mean, you know, people make all kinds of transitions in adolescence, but I think mine happened before then. So I think the likely explanation is, is Caroline. And then, I hope you don't mind me saying, but the fact that you, were you 41 when she died or was she, she was 41? 41. When she, was she was 41, so you were 36. Yes, exactly. Yes. It wasn't long after that that you got your job on The Independent, um, which would have been your kind of like moment of glory, mm. I suppose. Mm. Was that also a point when you started to, probably not consciously, but started to climb out from under her shadow? Is that Yeah, fair? I think it's strange. I very rarely talk about it, although obviously I did in the book. I very rarely talk about any of this stuff. Writing it down is easier, though. It, it is. I don't find it embarrassing. Just hearing myself talk about it sounds quite strange and unfamiliar. Yes, and I don't think I've ever said this before but clearly from one perspective or in one sense there was a liberation in her dying I mean it was it was terrible it was absolutely terrible shocking that's that is the most shocking thing that has ever happened in my life when my father called me at work to say she died but yes of course there was a certain liberation in that I didn't have to step on the cracks in the paving stone in quite the same way anymore and I suppose the thing I didn't realize or had only had a vague sense of, and some of this had come out when I'd had therapy in my 20s, when I was so crippled with um, a woman called Mrs. Jones. And she's the only person in my adult life I've ever called Mrs. But I assume it was part yeah. of a kind of Freudian impassivity and, you know, distance. Yeah. Whatever. Um, that was when I learned, and it had never occurred to me before, that I felt there was a sense that I couldn't be well when my sister was ill. And guess what? I had arguably made myself ill. And mm. I think I realised there were all kinds of things I didn't feel I was allowed to have. And one was health and one was career success and one was a relationship and one was a family. And I suppose the biggest of all was happiness. I didn't really feel I was allowed to be happy because my sister had had this debilitating illness. So stark isn't it when you think about it, it really is hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. 
With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. I was really interested in the strand in the book about the physical manifestations, I suppose, of emotional turmoil on you. And I think to a much lesser extent than, than you had it, it will be very familiar to a lot of women, the way that your body, I think you've said that my body said the things I can't say. Because, you know, also as a girl in some families, as a woman, as a good girl, as you were, there are things you're not allowed to say. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, when did it start to kind of occur to you that that was what was happening? Because you'd been in chronic pain for years, hadn't you? Well, on and off, I did have respite. The pain started when I was 24. I think. Then it was a few years after that. When I was sitting down, I was okay. But when I was standing up and walking, I was in pain most of the time, which was dreadful. I felt like, you know, the kind of little mermaid walking on knives. I think I probably had some sense then. I remember Mrs. Jones and in, in the scenes in the book when I had a wheelchair because I couldn't, if I wanted to kind of go around an art gallery or travel anything more than a few yards, not in a car, it had to be in a wheelchair. But she didn't know I had a wheelchair. And she was so shocked when I said that my mother had been pushing me around a park in a wheelchair. And also things were very different then in terms of disability rights and all the rest of it. So at the time, it felt like a kind of, you know, truly terrible thing to be in a wheelchair. And also, I think for me, it would have been truly terrible in that I wasn't disabled. You know, I had a pain condition and there should have been a better way to manage that. But she said something like, oh, a wheelchair gets a lot of attention, doesn't it? And I thought, what the fuck are you talking about? And it never occurred to me she was talking about the unconscious because I didn't, I was so naive, I didn't really know anything about, I mean, even though I'd studied Bart and Derrida and Foucault and all these kind of unbelievably complicated and difficult people, I hadn't read Freud and I didn't really understand about how the unconscious worked. So I suppose I had my first intimations of that when I had therapy in my 20s. But you can know something intellectually or have a sense of it intellectually, and it doesn't really have much impact. And I had therapy later in my late 30s, actually, when I'd met a guy. I basically, I, I, you know, the whole thing was disastrous. Either I ran away or they ran away or whatever. And I had met a guy who was, you know, kind of had a job, was quite handsome, not a psychopath, all of which seemed, you know, in his favour and quite unusual. And um, I did see a therapist and she did help me a bit for a while, but then she didn't. And who knows why people do or don't help. And then I had relapses of the pain. And even though at that point I knew it was to do, probably to do with all the family cycles and dynamics, the therapy didn't help with it. But I do think, I think you're absolutely right that many people, I think women in particular, do often express pain through their body. And I think that's often because, as I think you said, we don't feel entitled to share our grief or it feels unacceptable. I think I have a particularly literal minded body, which is often really embarrassing. It would kind of, you know, trip me up and, you know, I'd have terrible disfiguring acne. And that was like my shame written all over my face. And I think also generally a very honest person. Most people would say I'm one of the most honest people they meet. And that can be a bad thing, because if I don't like someone, it will probably be written all over my face. (laughs) You know, I just can't, can't hide it. But I think it also means that for me, there was a kind of particularly intense pain in not being 
being able to express my pain. And I think the thing I felt I was not able to express in my family was pain because my sister had the monopoly on pain. And therefore, it absolutely burst out of me in all kinds of weird forms. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. You know, there are several times in the book where you, your sister says, you know, basically, why do you make such a fuss about Christina? Mm. And from your perspective, your family is all about her. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, from everybody's perspective, they would say it was all about her. My, my Swedish aunt is certainly so. It wasn't all about her. But certainly, I think if you have someone in the family with a mental illness, it just is going to take up most of the attention. I had incredibly loving, lovely parents, extremely kind and loving and supportive. And I miss them even today. But there is no question but that Caroline did have to take up most of their attention. Of course. Your yeah, admiration, maybe, admiration for your parents. Right, yeah really does shine through in the book but they set the bar pretty high didn't they <laughs> yes no. especially in terms of you know romantic yeah. relationships yes absolutely yeah no a- admiration is the right word and certainly love but admiration is exactly right yes fucking nightmare I mean you know my, my, <laughs> my, my mother was 18 and my father was 21 when they were walking up a hill in Heidelberg and you know apparently their eyes locked and it was love at first sight and you know I think my father said something to my mother and they had this you know quoted Goethe they didn't speak each other's language my mother was Swedish my father was Scots English and um they spoke in German. And then three weeks later, he went back to Cambridge. He went back to Halmstad, a town on the west coast of Sweden. They wrote their love letters in German, quoting German poets, Heine, Goethe, and talked about their favourite Schubert songs. And then my father sent my mother a telegram saying, will you marry me? And she sent one back saying, yes, John, I will. And kind of that was that. So I just kind of, as a child, I seemed okay. So, you know, one day you're walking up a hill and then it's all kind of sorted. And uh, it didn't happen. (laughs) And and also, you know, my father had a double first from Cambridge. He was very, very handsome. I mean, then, of course, they all went a bit. 1970s and there was the shocking day my father appeared with sideburns and a yellow t-shirt which was so not <laughs> it was like what has happened here you know he was very kind of shirt and tie and, and so on but yes so they set the bar for romance extremely high and I thought that's what happened and then when it didn't happen I didn't really know what to do There's a fascinating comment that you quote from your mother's diary. And I mean, your parents were big diary and letter writers, weren't they? Well, your mother was a big diary keeper, but they were big letter writers. Where she says, she quotes you saying, Christina said, I'm going to smoke when I'm a daddy. (laughs) I know. Where did that come from? (laughs) Tells you a lot, though, don't you think? Yes, although dad didn't. It's funny because my parents were so moderate. They didn't actually smoke, but they did have, and I can see it, I wonder what happened to it, a lovely kind of Chinese lacquered box where they kept cigarettes. And then very, very, very occasionally, they would sit down and have a cigarette. So this must have been after, because I hardly ever remember seeing them smoke, it must have been after my father had a cigarette. And, And I don't know what, I really don't know what made me say that. But I do say in the book that I think it's quite sort of telling now, because I do think in one sense, I preferred the idea of being a daddy to being a mummy, probably partly. I mean, it was, you know, obviously just a kind of silly thing that a child says, but obviously it's a lot less work. So big tick there. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, But I do think I never, ever felt 
very um, womanly or feminine. And um, I, I never knew how to flirt. I still don't know how to flirt, which at this point in my <laughs> life doesn't really matter. But I had absolutely no idea. You know, I didn't really know what feminine wiles were. I didn't know how to use them. I never, ever felt that femininity was the kind of weapon I could bring to any encounter. I always felt like a person talking to people. I was scared of men. So there would have been a sort of edge of fear and probably a slight aggression there because I was scared and hid it or tried to hide it. But in lots of ways, you know, I've always liked arguing. I used to get into trouble when I was younger because like my father, I would argue very fiercely and not think, oh, I've got to be nice now. And, and you know, I would kind of, there'd be a kind of sudden embarrassing silence around a dinner table when everyone would think I'd gone a bit far, you know. And, <laughs> so I I don't know really what that's about, but I, I don't feel very womanly now, actually. I don't feel womanly now. I do wear makeup, but I don't feel womanly. I don't know what it feels, I don't know what that feels like. No, I I mean, I know exactly what you mean. And I think for me, one of the things that I like actually about being in my 50s and being on the other side of menopause because I went into perimenopause at 40 in my mid 40s mm. I don't feel like I have to pretend to be a girl anymore mm. if you know what mm. I mean I just feel like I never you know I didn't feel like I was a boy either mm. it's just me but I've never been girly and like you say I remember there was a contingent in the women's magazine world you know there were men in certain industries who would stare down your cleavage and there was a, a female contingent who played up to that. Well, I don't really have a cleavage, but I couldn't have done that if my life no. had depended on it. And so there's certainly some women that I spoke to when I was writing The Shift who really felt the loss of that as they got older. Mm. And as you said, I never really had known how to do that anyway. So when it went, it had never been there. Yeah. So how interesting. That. How interesting. No, I never had it. haven't lost it. So uh, yeah, how interesting. Yes, of course, a lot of women do talk about that feeling invisible thing. And I never felt visible. So it makes no difference. But I do think probably if we're talking sort of old fashioned stereotypes, I probably probably am a bit masculine. I think I probably am a bit masculine. I know I don't look particularly masculine. Although I've got very broad shoulders, I've got kind of Olympic shoulders. Um, I think maybe because you've got kind of longish blonde hair, I just always think of you as quite glamorous. I mean, I've just got long blonde hair, which of course wouldn't be blonde now if I didn't highlight it. It was very blonde as a child, yeah. but you know, what would be mousy hair and I wear makeup. So I don't know if that's a definition of glamour. It's, it's a pretty I suppose what I did get from my mother and what many women get is um, very good manners and the kind of conducting the orchestra of conversation. Uh, so it drives me mad when blokes don't do that work. It's like, you know, get your fucking, you know, get your act together and ask some questions, please. Because people always have said to me, oh, you can tell you're a journalist because you ask so many questions. Like, no, it's because I was well brought up. And that's what people do in conversation. <laughs> exactly. And just sit there and, you know, bore on about yourself. I think that kind of feminine oiling of the wheels, I definitely, the sort of social niceness, I definitely inherited from my, or mimicked from my mother, and as so many women do and can do. Yeah. Do you mind if we talk just briefly about um, your second breast cancer? You were put on Herceptin, is that right? No, I wasn't because they originally thought it was HER2+. plus. And I had this sort of very upsetting meeting with the uh, breast surgeon 
after the mastectomy and reconstruction. And they said, we think it's AGR2+. And then, of course, I went home and Googled it and thought, oh, my God, this doesn't sound good. And then I would have been put on Herceptin, but it turned out that it wasn't AGR2+, so I wasn't put on Herceptin. Well, that's good. I was going to ask you if that had induced a slightly early menopause in you. No, well, because I wasn't on it. But I did have tamoxifen after my first breast cancers. My first breast cancer was when I was 39, and I had five years of tamoxifen. So that stopped my periods, basically. Mm. And so I haven't really had periods since I was 39. And I must be postmenopausal now, but I didn't actually go through a menopause. So there's my silver lining from two bouts yes. of breast cancer. <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's always a silver lining if you look hard enough. So. <laughs> I think that's quite a big one, actually, because I know yes. I know lots of people do find menopause very difficult. And I'm sure it is and can be, but uh, not for me. <laughs> I want to ask you one more question before I go on to the questions I always ask at the end. Um, and there's no kind of link, but I want to kind of end on this positive thing. I love that you talk about how much you love parties. Mm. And that you see them as a sacred right. Mm. Tell me a bit about that. Oh, God, the last two years. I, oh, no. I, I just love a celebration. I love being with groups of people. I love meeting new people. I love drinking. I love canapes. I'm always chasing the canapes around the room. Um, <laughs> That's all those years of being a skint journalist. <laughs> Well, and just being very greedy. I just love, I love nibbles. <laughs> um, I just love them. And I suppose when I say there is sacred right, it's about celebration. And I do think life is unbelievably precious and beautiful. And I want to celebrate that. And for me, being in a room with people who also want to have a lovely time, having one hopes interesting conversation, drinking delicious wine, eating lovely food, what's not to like? You know, nothing nicer, really. Oh, I like the way you put it it's like you're saying it's a way of saying I choose life yeah I do I don't want to sound too train spotting but I think um I think it kind of it does feel that it really does feel that and the year when I did lose my job and I was 49 and unemployed and had no partner and no family and no prospect of another job in journalism I thought, well, fuck it. And I had a 50th birthday party. And because I thought, well, you've still got to have parties. You can't stop having parties unless you're in a pandemic, in which case, obviously, you do have to. But <laughs> Well, some people do. Some people do. Exactly. Obviously not our government, but the rest of us, yes. But no, I do. I love a party. I've really missed them the last couple of years. Really, really missed them. It's a marking, isn't it, that has gone, I think. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's so important to mark milestones. Yeah. Right. I'm going to ask you the questions we always ask. What's your emotional age? Oh, my goodness. 35? Why 35? I really don't know. It's just the, the, what popped into my head. I mean, in a way, younger than that, in that I've never felt like a grown up. I still don't feel like a grown up. And I don't even know what I mean. But I suppose it's partly the kind of conventional stuff about, you know, I didn't settle down and get a house with a man and have a family and worry about where the children are going to school and meet parents at the school gate and all of that. And I've never had, beyond my own family, I've never really had caring responsibilities. I've never had to be a carer. So from that point of view, I think I don't have the kind of weight of maturity that comes with that responsibility. I don't mean that I'm actually immature. I don't think I am actually immature. I think I've accumulated a fair bit of wisdom and common sense along the way. But I, I don't think it's what our grandparents would have thought of at 58. No, absolutely not. Recommend a book that has either just a book you've read recently that you loved or something that's been really significant to you. 
Well, I did read over Christmas Meg Mason's Sorrow and Bliss, which I, I loved. And I'm, I'm sure lots of people mentioned that. But I do think that is a really wonderful novel because it being partly about mental illness, it resonated strongly for me. But it is absolutely about sorrow and bliss. It's about joy and pain and complicated relationships. And it's very funny and sad and beautiful. And what more does one want from a novel, really? Thank you. What advice would you give younger women? Oh, dear. I don't really like giving advice. I think everybody has to make their own way. Follow your instincts, probably, but make sure you do masses of research. You know, do masses of reading, keep your eyes open, be curious. I think I might ultimately say, actually, the world is very big and you are quite a small part of it. And I think to focus outward, generally speaking, is likely to lead to greater satisfaction and happiness than to focus inward. For sure. Who is your old bird role model? I mean, Judy Dench is fantastic, isn't she? But uh, I mean, she wouldn't call yeah, an old bird, but I think she's amazing. So energetic and full of life and wanting to attack things. I think I might go for Judy Dench. What's your superpower? I think possibly kind of clarity, actually. I think I sort of have developed as a human and as a journalist quite wide ranging antennae for information, people, interlocking systems. And I think I'm quite good at cutting to the heart of an issue. Great. And lastly, how many fucks do you give? Depends what about. About, for example, the state of our country, an awful lot, an awful lot. Too many because it really, really upsets me. But it depends on whether it's important or trivial. You know, do I care what people think about me? Not really. Not anymore. Depends who they are. I care what people I respect think about me. But in terms of, you know, big issue stuff, yes, I do care a lot. That's brilliant. Thank you. And thank you so much for being so honest and candid with your answers. I really appreciate it's it. It's been a huge pleasure to talk to you, Sam. Thank you for really wonderful questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. 
We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>